Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of the Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the Weekend Edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. On the coronavirus front, scientists continue to explore one of the most interesting symptoms of COVID-19, which is when people lose their sense of smell and taste. As many as 80% of people experience a temporary loss of smell. And while most recover in about two weeks, for some it can last much longer. Some people's most favorite and familiar smells could smell like rotting meat or burning rubber, this condition known as parosmia. Scientists are studying why this happens and are getting clues to how the recovery might work. For more on this, we'll speak to Robbie Whelan, reporter at The Wall Street Journal. The latest thing that scientists are really interested in understanding is a condition called parosmia. And um, you mentioned the loss of smell, total loss of smell. That's called anosmia. That's a, that's a super common symptom. It's so common now that they're kind of using it on the, on the checklists for, you know, whether or not to get tested. If you lose your sense of smell and or taste, um, you should really go get tested because it's become such a commonly occurring symptom of COVID-19 that it's kind of become definitional for the disease. Um, and, and scientists think that about 80, 80% or so of, of people who suffer from, from the infection, uh, the coronavirus causes, uh, lose their sense of smell temporarily. However, there's a smaller subset of the people, of those people who lose their sense of smell, around 10 or 20% people estimate um, have their smell return with these distortions, very unpleasant side effect called parosmia. And what that means is some of the favorite smells that you were familiar with in your, you know, before you got COVID-19, um, often what, what they call, uh, you know, uh, these, these smells that are sort of memory, uh, memory triggering things like coffee, chocolate, fried foods, they start to smell really terrible and people can't even bear to be around them. And, um, for example, a lot of people I talk to who have experienced parosmia say that their favorite foods now smell like rotting meat or burning tires or, or even a sickly sweet chemical smell. And um, scientists have really turned their attention to this condition because they think that it holds some clues as to how COVID-19 attacks the nervous system. Because uh, the reason for that is because smell, the sense of smell is, uh, is a very direct, um, sense that goes from your nasal cavity. There are these neurons, brain cells in your nasal cavity. They, they pick up on smells and they transmit them to your brain directly through, um, through a, a little bit of bone that exists between your nasal cavity and your, and your skull. And, um, and because the, the sense of smell is being disrupted in all these interesting sort of weird ways, they, they can tell certain things about how COVID-19 attacks our nervous system. A lot of doctors are saying that kind of this transition from anosmia to parosmia is kind of at least a good sign. It's kind of a sign that you might be getting over it. Things might be changing and some of those cells that might have been destroyed are actually rebuilding. Even though the smells are wrong, at least you're starting to rebuild that. So what does that rebuilding process look like? The key question on everyone's mind in the scientific community is, does COVID-19 directly kill uh, neurons or brain cells? And the reason why that's important is because there are different types of infections. Zika, if you remember that virus from, from a few summers ago, the Zika virus was very neuroinvasive, meaning that it would actually enter the brain, attack brain cells, and cause all kinds of unpredictable responses. People were having strokes. 
people had what are called cytokine storms, which are very dangerous um, side effects that can actually cause death. So it's not actually the, the disease itself causing a death, it's these, it's these powerful side effects that happen. The good news about parosmia is that, as you said, it does indicate improvement. So in other words, you know, if, if you're having parosmia, it's because your cells are rebuilding, they're regenerating, and they're trying to figure out I sort of think of them as kind of like uh, alien tendrils. They're extending back into your brain, trying to find the right spot to connect. Or if you're an electrician, you might know the situation. In the dark, you're trying to connect a wire in the correct socket. And if you, if, you, if you get the wrong socket the first time, it's sort of a trial and error process. You have to keep on poking around until you plug into the correct socket to make sure that the system is set up correctly. That's the way our sense of smell works as right. well. So if our cells are not plugging into the right part of our brain, then signals can get mixed and we start smelling these really awful smells. And the reason for that is because our body is trying to protect us. It's saying, okay, something's wrong. I don't know what's wrong exactly, but I'm going to tell the body that this smell is dangerous so that the person doesn't eat it and, and make themselves ill. So that's what's going on there. Another, another really interesting thing about this is that um, I spoke about neuroinvasive infections. So, one way that this, this condition happens is if these neurons are directly killed. So that's a big question. Does coronavirus kill the neurons directly, or does it kill these cells that are all around your neurons? They're called support cells, and they, they make it possible for smell-detecting nerve cells to function. So if you kill enough of these supporting guys around, around the nerve cells, then that might actually make it impossible for your smell-detecting neurons to, to function properly. And if you only have minimal damage, let's say you just have a, you know, a small portion of your support cells are killed, then likely your sense of smell is going to come back in a week or two. And that's what the case is for most people who suffer from COVID-19. But there's a few cases where they've, they're now starting to, to, to sort of figure this out, is that sometimes the, the, the virus really does go after these nasal cavity cells in, in a really aggressive way. And that sort of tells us that our body is doing a good job of keeping the virus out of the brain generally. And it gives us some, some, some guidance on how we can sort of better recover from it and how we can help patients recover more quickly. Yeah, I can only imagine how frustrating it might be to have these familiar smells kind of be twisted in that way. And it's important because, we're, you know, we're finding out we need to manage inflammation in the body better when people are suffering from COVID-19. And then beyond that, smell is closely tied to mental health. And um, people with anosmia, parosmia, a long time they get depression or anxiety. So these are all other important things on why they're looking to find out why it happens and how to fix it and all. You hit on two things there, inflammation and the sort of knock-on mental health effects of this disease. The first one, inflammation is important because that's why these support cells die, right? When a virus enters our body, our body triggers an immune reaction where, where everything gets inflamed. And that, and that inflammation is typically local. So if the virus is, is attacking support cells in my nose, in my, na- my nasal cavity, and, and causing you know, smell loss, then that part of my body is going to inflame locally. It is trying to isolate and destroy the virus. But at the same time, that inflammation also kills off a bunch of these support cells. So you know, losing your smell is kind of a, uh, a lesser consequence than, letting, than al- allowing the virus into your brain, into your neural pathways, where it can really do some crazy damage. But what it means is that when we're concentrating on recovery, we really need to work on, um, on controlling inflammation. That's one takeaway from studying this condition that we've, that we've learned. Yeah, and then the second one you mentioned as well, when people lose their sense of smell, we, don't, we take it for granted when we have our sense of smell in order and everything is working properly. But, 
the sense of smell is, is closely tied to our emotions. It's closely tied to nostalgia and memories of the things we love and the people we love. And a lot of people don't realize that when you go without a sense of smell or a sense of taste for a couple of months, it can really wear on a person's mental health. There have been higher rates of suicide linked with uh, people who lose a sense of smell or other senses. And we really want to control that as well. So it's important to sort of study this condition and, and, and how to restore sense of smell from a mental health perspective as well. Robbie Whelan, reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Take care. This week, we also had some cool space news. China has successfully launched its most ambitious mission to the moon yet. It's a quick grab-and-go mission to bring back some lunar rocks. If they succeed, it'll be the first time since 1976 that we'll have fresh moon rocks back on Earth. For more on the Chinese moon mission, we'll speak to Lauren Grush, senior science writer at The Verge. So this is Chang'e 5. It's the latest in a string of missions that China has been doing over the last decade. The last notable mission to the moon was last year where they sent a lander to the far side of the moon, which was the first time that any nation had done that. So now what China is doing is it's trying to elevate itself even further by bringing back samples from the lunar surface, which only two countries have ever done before. The first was the United States and also the former Soviet Union, which did the last lunar sample return back in 1976. So if it's successful, it's the first time in decades that we'll be getting moon rocks back to Earth once again. Now, there's a lot of things that have to go right with this mission. It's pretty complicated and reading through it, I mean, it, it does sound like it. First off, the mission is super heavy. They have these four big rockets that are getting it out there. And tell us how it's going to work once they get out to the moon and how it's going to work to collect the samples and then get them back. You're exactly right. It's almost like a very complicated puzzle. There's four different spacecraft involved that will be working in tandem to bring this sample back. So they all go to the moon together, and then an orbiter will insert itself into orbit around the moon. And then eventually a lander with an ascent vehicle on top will break away from the rest of the package, if you will, and descend down to the surface of the moon. From there, the lander will scoop up the materials it needs, hoping to gather between two to four kilos of material. That will then transfer into the ascent module, which is basically sitting on top of the lander. And that will act like a mini rocket and take off from the moon and then dock with the spacecraft that will be in orbit around the moon. Then they'll head back to Earth together. And eventually that sample will transfer into the fourth vehicle, which is an Earth reentry vehicle. And that's the one that will break away. It'll come back to Earth, actually skip on our atmosphere, and then dive into the planet and eventually land in Inner Mongolia. I know they're, they're outfitting all these things with cameras. Are we going to get some video out of this? Do you think that they'll share all of this stuff? If it's successful, I mean, it's going to be a big moment of pride for them, obviously. Certainly. Well, China has usually been pretty good about sharing things once they've done them. But for this mission, I have some hope because there was actually an English live stream version of the launch, which is kind of rare with these missions. Usually what they'd like to do is declare victory after the fact. So I'm actually pretty hopeful that we will get some good visuals. And then also, I know that the scientific community is very eager for getting these samples back. So the place that this mission is going to is considered to be a very 
young place on the moon. It's very smooth compared to the rest of the moon. So they think there might have been some kind of late volcanic activity on this area. And so scientists all over the world are very eager to learn about what the rocks are like in this region. And it could tell us a lot more about the moon and its formation and its history. Is it particularly hard to mine rocks on the moon? It's hard to get to the moon, for, for one thing. <laughs> right, so yeah. landing on the moon at all is probably your biggest bet. But then once you're there, the regolith is pretty powdery. So it just depends on where you land. And I believe that China is well-equipped to actually scoop up the material it needs. And they're going to learn, obviously, a lot from what they're doing here. This is, at the end of it, you know, some of the people that you were talking to were saying that, you know, this is kind of uh, more of a practice run for maybe future crewed missions to the moon. So that's why they're going through this very elaborate process of having that orbiter there and the ascent module and all that stuff. So this is going to be a big learning moment for them for future travel in space. One thing that China does very well is kind of improving upon each of its missions and using its missions to learn and then do much more ambitious missions in the future. And a lot of people have been making the comparisons between this flight and the Apollo mission profile, the one that we sent to the moon to put humans on the surface of the moon. And I think the biggest clue is this rendezvous and docking that will be happening in orbit around the moon. That would be very key for a future mission to send astronauts to the lunar surface. So there are definitely some clues in this mission profile that point to even more ambitious missions that China has on its radar in the future. Well, it's going to be really interesting. As I mentioned, you know, they're looking at 23 days or so for this to be all done and maybe come back. So, uh, you know, it'll be, like I said, quick turnaround. So it'll be interesting to see what they can do and if they're successful. And, you know, we wish them luck for all that. Yeah, definitely. And they have to get it done soon, too, because they're not built to withstand the lunar nighttime on the moon surface where the moon gets plunged into darkness for two weeks and the temperatures drop well below minus 200 degrees Fahrenheit. So they have to get it done quickly. It must operate in that two week time span when it's not nighttime on the moon. So hopefully they can get it done and we'll have some moon rocks before the end of the year. Lauren Grush, senior science reporter at The Verge. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Finally for this week, with Thanksgiving behind us now, we're looking forward to holidays and some of those more traditional experiences. Like, how will your visit to Santa be different during the pandemic? Some retailers are canceling Santa visits, but others are still doing it in person, where Santa could be protected inside a giant snow globe or barricaded behind an eight-foot picture frame. For more on how your Santa visit won't be the same this year, we'll speak to Abba Batarai, national retail reporter at The Washington Post. So it turns out that this has been a puzzle that malls and retailers and all types of venues have been dealing with for the last several months, trying to figure out exactly how to get Santa and his wonderland into their malls and their stores, but to keep Santa safe and to keep the children and families around him safe. So we're seeing all sorts of different ideas. The one that you mentioned is also my favorite, the acrylic snow globe. So it looks like Santa is trapped inside this winter wonderland and you can oppose for pictures from outside. There are all sorts of other ones too. They're like huge picture frames. So it looks like Santa's, you know, there's a portrait of Santa that you're standing in front of. There are sleighs that are extra long. So the children will sit on one side and Santa's at the other. One of my other favorite ones, Cowboy Kringle in <laughs> yes. Texas wears red leather chaps and a cowboy hat and then has a kid sit on a saddle that's six feet away. So all sorts of creative, different atmospheres, environments that companies are coming up with. Most of the places that are doing these, obviously, 
A lot of them are requiring reservations, masks, obviously, before you get to take the picture and all temperature checks. So they are going through all of the steps that they need to do. But people more than ever want to still hold on to these traditional experiences because the pandemic has kind of upended life everywhere, really. So it's been uh, really important to a lot of people, to the retailers themselves, because it usually brings in businesses, to the Santas themselves, because they rely on this for work at the end of the year, too. Exactly. And that's what I kept hearing over and over is that everybody just wanted a sense of normalcy. They have to give up so much this year. And that Santa visit really kind of is this long held tradition that they don't want to give up. And what you mentioned about Santas is really interesting as well and important that a lot of these Santas know that they're high risk for COVID. Many of them are sitting out the year entirely or just doing Zoom calls. But the ones that are working, you know, say that they really rely on this money. They maybe are just living on Social Security checks. And so making a few hundred dollars a day during the holiday season goes a long way. And so that's why they're taking all of these precautions and continuing to show up. Some of the companies that book Santa's say that they're looking at declines of 40 to 65 percent. So that it, it is a pretty big drop. And you mentioned, uh, you know, a lot of them doing some kind of uh, virtual visits. I think that's what Macy's kind of shifted off to. But tell us a little bit about some of the ones that are doing it. I guess Bass Pro Shops has already started some of them, and they're seeing huge success there. Bass Pro Shops is a huge one that's doing it around the country, and they had nearly 100,000 visitors the first week that they had Santa in their stores. So they're one of the ones that requires online reservations this year. They require that everybody gets a temperature check, and they also have elves that are doubling as Santa's sanitation squad. So they're wiping down all the surfaces. And in addition, Santa is often wearing a face shield. And so if you look closely in the photos, you'll see sort of this glossy <laughs> layer oh, wow. over Santa's face, but it's a face shield so that you can still see the face and the beard, but there's right. another layer between him and the children. I did want to get back a little bit to that snow globe idea, because I think just as everybody has to kind of make these adjustments and, and think about safety, I think that's a perfect one because it's such a picturesque thing already. You know, you see snow globes all over the place with Santa inside of them. So why not the life size version? But the person who kind of designed at least one of the main ones, uh, Catherine Burgess out of Richmond, she said she spent $10,000 manufacturing that thing. She's a Richmond-based photographer who every holiday season relies on these Santa portraits to make money, basically. And she does hundreds or thousands of these every year. And she said this summer she was in the shower thinking, well, what am I going to do? Like, am I just not going to do Santa portraits this year? How can I make it safe? And that's when she came up with the snow globe idea. So she invested about $10,000 to get these prototypes. And she has three or four different types of acrylic snow globes and pop-up tents that all kind of look like acceptable ways to protect Santa. And she's sold about 50 of them around the country to different malls and hospitals, schools. So they are being used. And another thing that's really interesting is that a lot of Santas said that home visits are up. People don't want to go to the mall. They don't want to brave the crowds, but they're asking Santa to come to their house and like read a story to their children or maybe play a game or sing a song to the family from six feet away. And so that's another line of business that's picking up. Abba Batarai, national retail reporter at the Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much. That's it for this weekend. Be sure to check out The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Dive has been engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive Weekend Edition.